Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the author of this great book writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that on that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall. Before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let's pray together. (laughs) Lord, you are having a sense of humor, and we do praise you for that. We also ask now that as we come to your word, you would give the Holy Spirit 
and help us to see your greatness. Please humble us and make us happy to be put in our place. Not to be the man or the woman, but to live for the man, Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. You're familiar with the idea of a chain reaction. One impulse, one decision, one word, one action, setting off so many others in relationship to itself. Like the devastation of a forest fire from the tiny ember of a cigarette butt, or the various ripples originating from a single drop of water in an otherwise still pool, or maybe you think of a, a game of dominoes, knock one over into the next, causing the many to fall however they were set up by the one who put them in their place. And this is maybe an illustration all the better because we can observe the sovereign design in it. Seen up close, one domino falls in isolation from all the rest. You zoom out on it and it's part of a grand design. It's part of a grand scheme. We're at a point now in Esther where we can begin to see something similar with respect to the responsible actions of the human actors. Seen up close, the king's night of drunken vanity and rage seems to be an isolated event. But now we, we zoom out, and it's just the, the tiny ember. It's the drop in the pool. It's the first domino to fall. And now, here we are, more than a decade later, Haman's in power, the Jews are facing extinction, Mordecai's endangered, Esther's turned to God, and she just happens to be queen of Persia for such a time as this. And that's really just the, the main stuff. But truly, every breath, the whole life of everyone within that realm, the very fabric of existence goes as God has purposed it. And it's to help us see this that we have Esther chapter 6. We come to it and find the main human actors, what? Asleep. Not a creature is stirring, but the Creator is working. As one put it, by bringing us to bedtime, uh, the author's taken the focus away from human action and put it on the power controlling these events, as it were, beneath the surface, behind the scenes. He's here outlining the invisible hand that's guiding everything the entire time. So, if we will, it's spellbinding. It really is spellbinding to think, as J. Gresham Machen put it, that, quote, when it speaks of God's government of the world, the Bible makes zero exceptions. None. From the starry hosts above to the heartbeat of the little sparrow to the insomnia of a king within the private and guarded confines of his own bedroom. Nothing at all, he adds, happens outside of God's eternal plan. Beloved, our God is God indeed. As Karen Jobes says, quote, 
any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then. Our God is so great, so powerful, he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and his ancient promises. Well, let's go to our text then and observe first a seed flowered. And to that end, you'll recall what happened in chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. I told you then to store it away for this morning. A fortuitous seed was planted and left to flower at just the right time. You think back, uh, two of the king's eunuchs thought that they were conspiring undercover to murder the king when Mordecai, who happened to be within an earshot of these guys, overheard the plot and faced this great ethic dilemma, am I going to participate in the assassination of Ahasuerus or am I going to foil it? As you know, in the end, he chose to do good to this evil king. He reported the matter to Esther, who reported it in Mordecai's name to the king, who made an immediate inquiry into the matter, found it to be so, and then had those men hanged, and so the king lived. Mordecai foiled the plot and saved the king's life, and we're told then that it was recorded. It was written down in a book. Very important. But then, as it was customary, in order to promote loyalty for such beneficiaries of the king to be honored, right? we're expecting the rise of Mordecai. Instead, we get the rise of Haman. Mordecai's good deed is noted, but then is buried and forgotten. And a horrible person is put in the place that perhaps had his deed, had its due praise, would have been Mordecai's place to occupy. This was the fortuitous seed left behind to flower, and to do so at just the right time, which is right now. Esther has held her first feast, Haman has readied the gallows, and night has fallen, and then it says in our verse 1, on that night the king could not sleep, and all God's people said, Ahasuerus, we get it. We really do. In fact, uh, the night before I came to think on this part of the text, I had my own bout of insomnia. Funny how that happens. And funnier still, if it weren't so awful, right, wanting to sleep, but then being unable to fall asleep, and I'm not a king. I don't have servants at the ready to sing me lullabies until I fall asleep, and as many times as I need to fall asleep again, or at least I don't think Jenny would be quite so up for that at 3 a.m. in the morning, and frankly, I'd be only slightly terrified to ask her. But a king has resources. A king has resources. So he calls for some bedtime stories from the book of memorable deeds, which is ironical and comical. The humor of it, of course, is simply that the cure... For the king's insomnia is the story of his own life. Okay? Apparently, the king's life bores him to snores. 
The irony of it is that the book of memorable deeds carries an incredibly significant deed that has been long forgotten. That's our fortuitous seed. And as we see then, the king's inability to sleep has led to the opening of this book, chronicling, by the way, over a decade's worth of deeds. And voila! There it is. The weeds give way, the ground opens, the seed shoots forth, and it flowers right before the eyes of the king. As it says in our verse 2, it was found, written, how Mordecai had saved the king's life. And the king is then inclined to ask, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this Whoever it was who was in charge of reading the king to sleep says nothing. Not a thing. On the one side of the ledger was was this great deed. He had saved the king's life. On the other side of the ledger, just blank. Can I tell you how great our God is? The bedroom of the most powerful man in the world is God's stage. He cannot be kept out of it. As the Bible tells us, He's sovereign even over our sleep patterns, as Mr. Bill read for us in our call to worship, Psalm 3. And here, God holds open the king's eyelids and He inclines him to seek out some NyQuil-level reading in which among an ocean of memories, about 12 years' worth of memories, the finger of this reader falls on Mordecai's forgotten heroics, which has the king all aghast here and further inclined to remedy the wrong. None of that had to go that way, but it all goes that way. And we're not done. Think about the perfection of wisdom involved in this. Truly, who has known the mind of the Lord that we might instruct him? In the moment of his slight, I'm sure, Mordecai was somewhat miffed. I'm sure he wondered about the actual benefit of doing good in a world gone bad. He may have even second-guessed the good that he had done in that moment. Perhaps you've been there too. I know that I've been there. But listen here. If honor had been given at that earlier time, it would have been redundant at this most perfect time. The king would not have had any reason to honor Mordecai now. And so the honor that could have come then did not then come that it might come to fruition precisely in this moment. This is amazing. Beloved, God knows best how and when to honor and commend us. So I just want to say this morning, don't grow impatient in well-doing so that you leave off doing it. And don't doubt the worth of doing God's kind of good. You know when we do that? We do that when our eyes look for the praise of man and it doesn't come. Instead of the smile of God, which in Christ is always constant. 
Understand, for all their efforts not to forget memorable deeds, people will forget. And so, people will get overlooked. We don't always receive a fit reward from people. But God sees. And He takes note. And He never forgets in order to a full reward for all eternity. And it's when we're content with that, which is but added mercy upon the grace of eternal life, it's when we're content in reflecting something of Christ that we will quite happily endure in honor deferred. Really hard. But I want to tell you, you cry no tear in this world, but it's kept by God in a bottle for an eternal repayment in the day when He wipes every tear away from your eyes so that they never, ever return again. One other thing here, just see how in all of this, uh, the best laid plans of the second most powerful man in the world are foiled by divine caffeine. Okay? That is, something as seemingly ordinary as a sleepless night has foiled the entire thing. Oh, how mighty we do think we are until God enters the room. (laughs) However many are the plans in a man's heart, it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so it is here in the bedroom of the king. Unbeknownst to them, Haman's going down, Mordecai's going to go up, and Esther's had the scales tipped decisively in her favor, the pendulum has swung kindly for God's people in these moments. As I said, Haman doesn't know this. And so we come to a switch of fortunes, starting in verse 4. It seems the sun has now crested, and the king's ready to get to business. And so he asks, hey, who's in the court? Let's get this thing going. And wouldn't you know it, first in line, like a parent going after a prize toy on Black Friday, there's Haman. He's so excited by the prospect of Mordecai's humiliating death, he too could hardly sleep. And so there he is. There he is. And he has his desire in the chamber, ready to fire. We just need to see now that as God would have it, the king, having invited him in, he gets the first Shot off. He preempts Haman's petition. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And the ironic hilarity, I heard you chuckling as I read it, that ensues is owing to the fact that the king does not name the man. It's left for Haman to assume, and is there any doubt, who Haman thinks is the man. Whom, end of verse 6, would the king delight to honor more than me? (laughs) This is one of Haman's great character flaws. He cannot imagine honoring anybody but himself. It never crosses his mind that the king could have anybody else in mind. Haman suffers from an unmitigated God complex, as you and I did, 
before God set up His kingdom within our hearts. And now we pray, I hope, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, that God complex is mitigated. But Haman can't see this. Haman can't see this. As Maximus said to Commodus, that quote, the time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end, Highness. And so he answers the king's question with respect to himself. How would I like to be honored? And you know, what's interesting is he really only does what we should do when it comes to honoring others. Did you know that we're called as the church to outdo one another in showing honor? That's Romans 12, verse 10. Are we pursuing honor for ourselves or are we outdoing one another in giving honor? This is where competition is good in the church. Right? Let's be honorable and then try to best each other in showing honor where honor is really due. Right? And I could handpick each of you for this, but I'll just select Robin Walker and embarrass them for a moment and tell you what you already know. And that's the point, to make it public and say how like Christ they serve this body of Christ. Tirelessly, prayerfully, variously, sacrificially, humbly, and of course, all in good humor. Imitate them. Imitate them. Don't imitate Haman. Again, Haman cannot see outside of himself. He's the best, and he deserves the best. You see his counsel. Yes, king, if it's, if it's not too much to ask, let the king's robes and the king's horse be brought to the man and, and let the king's most noble official dress him and horse him and lead him through the square. Oh, and if you don't mind, if you don't think it's you know, too grandiose, how about a bit of preaching? Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. You see what Haman's after. How... He won't settle for anything less than the king's very office. He's his own personal Tower of Babel. Honestly, if I were the king, I'd be more than a little alarmed by Haman's royal aspirations. But alas, nothing that should be alarming does ever alarm Ahasuerus. And this in particular does not alarm him. Why? Well, the answer is the kicker. Because the king doesn't have Haman in mind at all. Mordecai the Jew is the man. So he takes Haman's counsel and tells him to do for Mordecai all that he has said and intended for himself. He's to honor with his dream scenario of self-honor the one he came to have put on some gallows. Can't you just feel his heart drop? I have half a mind to think he thought about taking the king's belongings and making off with them, sniffing them obsessively as he went. He doesn't do that. He takes them, and Haman dresses Mordecai. 
And he leads Mordecai through the square. And Haman is the preacher, proclaiming before Mordecai, thus shall it be done to, and you know he just wants to muffle it, right? He wants to muffle it all. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then it's over for Mordecai. No big deal. He returns to the king's gate. It's back to business as usual. That's how you handle honor. But see how poorly Haman, the great man, handles adversity and the call to humility. The man who not a day earlier made his way home dancing on air now does so mourning and covering his head, hoping no one would recognize him. He who lived for recognition wants none of that recognition. None of a moment in third place. Humility pills are so good for swollen egos, but they are no doubt hard to swallow. And some, it seems, would rather die in their pride than take them. This is a window of change and opportunity for Haman, if he'll have it. His world has been completely rocked. His plan has been absolutely stopped. He's not as great as he thought he was. This is an opportunity like Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel. What do we make of such windows? Do we welcome the light it promises to bring? Or do we slam it down and draw the curtains? And continue on in darkness? Do we soften? Or do we harden? Do we glean from these kinds of of things, or do we grumble and groan? Do we repent and cry out to God as great sinners for greater mercy, or simply paint a new face on pride and continue in the path of destruction? Do we take the humility pills God gives us, or do we let them sit on our nightstand and just stay there and grow dusty? Beloved, let us again thank God Thank God for the grace of humiliation. The grace that puts us in our proper place. We are what we are, one said, before God and nothing more. So dear ones, let's be happy and let's be thankful for all God uses to bring our hearts to sing the great song, How Great Thou art, how great thou art. Would that Haman had done so. But the scene shifts. His grief stays godless. And he goes on to paint that new face on old pride. The window is shut. And foreshadowing a sure fall, the darkened pity party begins if you look at verse 13. It's deeply saddening in light of the alternative that was in front of him. See first that he's still all about Haman. 
He gathers his wife and friends to tell them all that's happened to him. You see it? To him. The circumstances have changed. His appearance has changed. Haman has not changed. Friends, let's be clear that self-pity is still a form of self-obsession. Just from a different angle. Just because he is sad and humiliated does not mean he is sorrowful and humbled. Haman needed to learn, as we all do, what Timothy Keller says about humility, how it's not as much about thinking less of ourselves as it is thinking of ourselves less. But Haman's focus is still squarely on Haman. How blind that has him. First and foremost, to his place before God, but also to his place within his own kingdom. Do you see this? How the idol of self has to have the highest place and cannot even fathom the lowest. If you're not first, you're last. Which is illogical, right? There's second place, and third place, fourth place, And so on. In fact is, the king has still counted Haman his, what's it say in the text? Most noble official. And Haman is mourning under that honor. Why? Because it's not enough. He doesn't get to wear the king's clothes. So it might as well be nothing. But he doesn't like to be treated as nothing because in his own eyes, he is somebody. Welcome to the spiritual schizophrenia that is pride. Aspiring to the stars while always succumbing to insecurity. I'm the greatest of all time, fearful of being a nobody all the time. One author calls it, quote, the the hero-martyr-victim complex. He says, it's really hard to interrogate yourself when you've got a really good story to tell. And doesn't Haman have a really good story to tell? Remember last week, dollar-dollar bills, y'all. He's got money flying everywhere. He's got sons a mile long. He's had this astronomical rise. Queen Esther had a feast and invited no one else but he and the king. He's got... A really good story to tell. What this author says then is that where there's this kind of fruit, where there's this kind of achievement, this this empirical rise and dirt under the fingernails. You don't know what I've had to give and take to get where I am. There, he says, you have a hero set up for a hard fall. There, There's all the ingredients for one to view themselves as beyond reproof, beyond critique, above humility. One who is a hero in their own eyes finds cause in every challenge to play the victim, which the author closes is a really toxic mindset to be in. And don't we see all this in Haman? He is bedaubed in this kind of toxicity. Is there any of it? at all on us. You 
If so, it's not at all a sign of health. It's a warning sign. Beloved, it's not healthy to stew over another's honor. That was mine to have. It should have been me. But all are against me. It's all a big conspiracy. As Frank Sinatra used to sing, black cats creep across my path until I'm almost mad. I must have wrought the devil's wrath because all my luck is bad. I make a day for golf and you can bet your life it rains. I try to give a party but the guy upstairs complains. I guess I'll go through life catching colds and missing trains. Everything happens to me. Everything happens to me. Well, no matter the truth, that's how Haman feels. And it's what we should fight by the grace of the gospel. My identity, my sufficiency, my situations, my all are framed by the dying love of Jesus Christ for me. He's the real hero of the story who became the victim indeed that I would be freed from self-delusion on either side to know the truth. I'm not the hero, I'm a sinner. And I'm not the victim, I'm saved by grace. He's delivered me from me. (laughs) Please continue, Lord, to do so. He's my light on reality. He's my Savior. He's my rock. He's the lifter of my shameful head. Oh, that Haman or any here would look to Christ for the renovation and consolation that neither you nor the world can ever provide. Only Jesus can. But Haman looks elsewhere. He looks to his wife. He looks to his friends. He looks to his wise men. And it appears that in the process of verbalizing his self-pity, he lets something out that changes the complexion of their counsel full stop. What is it? Mordecai, end of verse 13, is of the Jewish people. Uh Uh-oh. Haman, you've made a grave miscalculation. You see their conclusion. If what you say is true, that your enemy is a Hebrew, your fall has only begun. This is just a a stumble. You are sure to fall headlong. You will not be able to overcome him. What in the world? You see the divine providence in this, how Haman's own craftiness and secrecy about what he was doing is going to be his undoing. We're led to believe that if he had revealed this to them at any time before, he may or may not have taken a different path to a different end, but their counsel to him, it definitely would have been different. They seem to be aware of of history. In a way, the Agagite, surprisingly, 
is not. Or, at least, they're sensitive enough to infer the truth, like a Rahab, from the revelation they had. They've seen this movie before. And they know how it ends. You don't take sides against the God of Israel. That's a losing battle every time. Every knee is destined to bow before Him. Haman, you've secured your downfall. No nursery for you this time. Just real talk and hard knocks. And while we could wish they had drawn out the gospel, how if he was to fall before this Jewish man, perhaps he might live by another Jewish man, they're interrupted by a knock at the door. And it's the king's eunuchs come now to ominously whisk Haman away to Esther's second feast. And just like that, just like that, everything has changed. And as the psalmist prophesies of the gospel, Psalm 118, I believe it is, so we ought to say here, it is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. While they were sleeping, God was saving. Beloved, our God is great and ultimately without rival for the benefit of His people. And nowhere do we see this more gloriously than in the Gospel. How He's not kept His purpose private. He's laid it out instead by ancient promises and in doing so, given the devil every opportunity to overthrow it, only to be forever frustrated by a God who cannot be beaten. A God whose purpose in Christ cannot be thwarted. You remember Job. But there was a time, like this time, where his purpose appeared tenuous. Through countless providences, Christ had come into the world to save sinners. And He'd done not just some good, but never any wrong. Never any wrong. And like Mordecai, His yet vastly superior deeds had been overlooked by man. Or worse, they'd been seen, but despised and rejected. And though the wife of the man overseeing his case, had her own sleep troubles, you may remember Pilate's wife, inclining her to urge Pilate, absolve that righteous man. Pilate, instead, went forward with the cross. Christ was crucified. All seemed lost. Looked like sin had won. Surely Satan thought, I've gained the victory. When? Not a seed. But the body of Messiah was buried. And left to be forgotten. But, the last will be first. And the humble will be exalted. And so, in the early morning hours... The king of glory was pleased 
to honor his suffering servant by delivering him from death and proving him to be the preeminent Lord of life. And abruptly then, Satan's delusions of grandeur and victory were smashed to bits as Jesus was raised from the dead. And just like that, everything is changed. While most were sleeping, God was saving. He was creating a a covering of righteousness. The king's clothes. And the king's honor for those who are cloaked in sin and shame. And so I just want to say, lift up your head, unbeliever. Lift up your head. You need not go home as Haman did mourning. You need not fear recognition for who and what you are. God knows who and what you are, and He still invites you to participate in the victory of Christ. Jesus died to secure your pardon and peace and life with God, and He lives to drive it home this very hour. And so I'm just saying, don't pull a Haman. Don't pull a Haman. Every knee will bow. See that your knee bows in the humility of repentance and faith in Christ. And you will be saved. And beloved, while the calls from our text are many, let me only say this. Take heart in God's providence and see health in humility pills. God is great and we Well, not so much, according to that standard. Swallow the situations gladly that put you in your place. We aren't God. And still, our lives pulsate with potential for God. Even the most ordinary events, like whether you sleep or don't sleep, carry extraordinary significance in the hands of God. And that's the point this morning. God wastes nothing. It's all part of His plan. The difficult child, the job snub, the ominous diagnosis, the unexpected death, the call in the night, the sleepless night, fill in your blank. If the cross of Jesus was a part of the plan, so too are all those things. As are all the wonderful things that God gives us to enjoy. By all of it, He saves us and shapes us and moves us to manifest the man, Christ Jesus. So, may all our embers and all our drips and all our dominoes fall for Him Ripple out for Him. Set the world ablaze for Him. For who knows, dear ones, what good God has designed and planned for His glory by the sum of them. Something we do know, and it's equally wonderful. And it's that in Jesus, God's made the domino to fall that switched our fortunes for His forever. And there's no switching it back. (laughs) There's just ripples 
of grace for all eternity. So let's give him the praise this morning for that. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you. We thank you so much for how great you are and for your grace towards us and for the confidence that we can have in you. Please continue to help our hearts to forfeit pride, to mortify it, to put it to death, and to live humbly for our God, for our King. And would you be manifest in all of our ministry for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.